Podcast Media. The truth is a cleansing fire. Which burns away the lies we've told each other. the lies we've told ourselves. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, episode 5, 24-7. I'm joined by my two always honest co-hosts, Ben. Hey, hey, hey. And Ashley. Hello. On each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through four sections. First, we will summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes. Then we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. We wrap up by connecting the TV show back to the comics and offering our final thoughts. All right, let's get to the episode. Sean, over to you for the summary. Okay, so when this episode starts, I'm thinking it's going to be a nice, calm little episode. You know, Dream takes a a nap, John gets (laughs) breakfast, everyone rests up before we get back to this business about the ruby. But alas, (laughs) no, a bunch of crazy stuff happens. You see, while Dream is lying there unconscious after being zapped by his own Dreamstone, John is eager to get started on stripping the world of its lies and illusions and remaking it as a more honest place. Unfortunately for our cast of characters, he decides to start at a nondescript 24-hour diner with a gang of regulars who are really just trying to have a nice lunch. There's Bet, the aspiring writer who wants to see the best in everyone. Marsh, the gruff short-order cook, who really comes the closest to deserving all the bad stuff that happens to him. There's Judy, a young woman whose partner left her after a fight, and whose fear of judgment manifests as a resentment towards those around her. Kate and Gary, a couple celebrating, air quotes, their anniversary, who somehow made it five years while believing that sex is some kind of zero-sum game where there's always a winner and a loser. (laughs) And Mark, a young businessman who has the worst job interview ever. (laughs) Over the course of an afternoon, John uses the power of the ruby to strip away what he sees as the lies they tell each other and themselves. First, he forces them to reveal their secrets to one another. Then, he forces them to act on their hidden desires. When they reject what he views as his gift, he forces them to confront his ultimate truth of suffering, ending in a self-inflicted massacre and an apocalyptic visit from the fates. Finally, Morpheus awakens and appears at the diner to confront John. With John determined to usurp Dream's power and destroy him, the two travel to the Dreaming to do battle. The Sandman takes the lead early in the game by creating a dream where John wanders the Burgess estate and is almost strangled to death by the Oedipal nightmare of his mother. But John gets in the game when he realizes it's a dream and finds himself in Morpheus's throne room, where he uses the power of the ruby to begin destroying the Dreaming. It looks like John's going to take it all, literally, when he begins to absorb the Dream Lord's essence into his ruby. Believing he's destroying Dream's life, he crushes the ruby in his hand. 
It looks like the champ is down for the count, but no. John has inadvertently released the power of the ruby by destroying it, returning it all to Morpheus. Instead of putting him in a coma or banishing him to hell, like Dream normally does with people he's mad at, Morpheus returns John to the hospital where we first encountered him and where he'll presumably have some questions to answer about all the staffing issues he created last time he was there. As Morpheus and Matthew ride into the sunset, or at least Sandman's version of the sunset, which is actually the middle of the night, a mysterious and alluring figure watches them, conveniently letting us viewers know that Dream is their big brother. Thank you for that, Sean. A bit of editorializing in the summary is always appreciated. I think you even Who, snuck in a bit of a hot take in there, so I'm sure <laughs> but... we might just jump right over to that. And um, Ashley, what was your hot take from today? Whew. This was a bit of a seesaw episode for me. Uh, there were some really great moments that I thought uh, happened between characters, and then there were some lost beats for me. I wish, and maybe I'm a sadist for saying this, I, I wish that we had more time in the diner. I w wish that we had seen maybe the passage of time. Not, I know we're condensing material, but I wish we had seen that extended a bit as we went through like sort of sequences of their journey with John D. Uh, but overall, I think for what the comic issue is and what they were able to translate to the screen, they made it so someone like my husband who had never read it before didn't lose their lunch while, while watching it uh, as much as it made him uncomfortable. And that was him being half distracted playing Breath of the Wild while we were watching it. He, even he was kind of kind of like, "Wait, what's happening?" Um, <laughs> so it was kind. Of, it was helpful to watch it with somebody who's not read uh, and realize, "Oh, this is quite strong for somebody who's not knowing what to expect." But overall, I think for me, the sadist reader, uh, I would have liked to have seen a, a slight extension and maybe not truncating that journey specifically. Uh, and the, the ending was a little Disney comic villain to me. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen a different ending, but overall, I think it was a pretty good episode. Excellent, excellent. All right, so uh, from 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 my side, I almost in a little bit of conflict here with Ashley. Really enjoyed how much you know panel like the comic book panels that we saw brought to life. I think that was one thing that we've talked about on our TV episode breakdowns where we're like, "Oh, but that panel. Oh, but that panel." And it's just like, well, at some point like those cost a lot more money to do and you have to be limited. And so, you know, I thought when, you know, Bet um screwdrivered her eyes out uh was phenomenal. Um I thought how they did the fates again. The three in one was phenomenal. Yeah, that was very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, like the giant hand, which I was really hoping they were going to do, uh, also, <laughs> um, also was there. And so I really liked that some of those classic panels um, from this first volume uh, were there for us to enjoy and see how they could be done on screen. Sean, how about you? After I know you've already snuck one in. so <laughs> no, that, that, That's interesting because I had I think a bit of a different approach than both of you because I have been reading the comics at the pace where we've been doing the show mm -hmm. so now that 
the pace of the show has eclipsed the pace at which we've been doing mm. our read-through episodes, um, I'm getting the show's impression first, whereas it's been uh-huh. several years since I last read this 24 hours mm. issue, you know, the comic book issue that this that this was based on. I feel like I was able to sort of approach it with, with new eyes. Um, so there's a lot of gross stuff in this episode, but nothing makes my skin crawl like a miserable couple who are trying to like suppress their resentment in public <laughs> and failing, you know? Mom, dad, stop fighting. It like drives me up a wall. Like it just <laughs> makes me cringe so much. Like the like mm, the dinner party episode excellent. of The Office or like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, like, that's like one of my things. favorite plays. <laughs> No, it's great. I I absolutely love it, but it just creates this visceral reaction in me. Like people chopping off their own limbs or blinding themselves. I mean, (laughs) I squirmed, but overall it's fine. Like couples doing passive aggressive sniping at each other in front of an acquaintance, like uh, Gary and Kate, like trying, like trying to not argue over whether or not Gary's having a spinach salad. Like, God, just get me out of there. Get me out. Uh, but overall, I thought this was a, a, a pretty successful episode. Um, it got off to a slow start, I felt like. Uh, There's a lot of time spent introducing the characters in the diner, their motivations, their conflicts. And at times that felt a little flat to me, just like mm. a little, you know, sort of one-dimensional um, but once things start to ramp up, as we get to like the midpoint of the episode, I felt like they really, really got going. And there was so much to like about it, including like a lot of moments that I just had to stop and rewind because there was so much happening so quickly in that back half, back half of the episode. But from the, you know, design of the diner to the use of the lighting to convey changes to the mood of the story to that like nightmarish confrontation between John and Morpheus and to the little elements like the news reports on TV. Um, it was a packed episode. I thought there was a lot to appreciate. Bring, 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 bring. Ah, yes, hello. Uh, this is Michael from Vanguard calling for Sean. Sean, we were expecting you here in the office just a little bit ago for an interview. Is everything going okay? Oh yeah, yeah, it's good. I'm just, I'm just uh, stopping to get some lunch real quick, having a quick meal. I'm sure it'll take 10, 15 minutes. You know, I'm a quick eater. I'll be right there. So, so we'll see you real soon. Yeah, yeah, be there, be there soon. It looks like it's not even very crowded. I'll be in and out. Okay, we'll see you shortly. Bye now. All right. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! Why are you doing this? This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! Stay the night. 
11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. All right, well, now that we've gotten our hot takes out of the way, let's move into the real meat and potatoes here of our episode. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing our patented, not really, scene-by-scene breakdown. And we've chopped this up into four sections today. So this first section uh, is right up to the point where John D. actually starts to use the ruby. So his entrance into the diner, meeting a few of the characters, but really we don't want to touch on anything that involves him starting to use the ruby. That will obviously be the next four scenes. So I will pass it over to my co-host, Ashley, to hop in here with uh, the scene setting, essentially, for this episode. Thank you. Yes, I really enjoyed how John enters the diner and kind of just goes into observation mode, just scanning everybody, sort of measuring who the characters in this play he's going to start casting are, you know, who's participating here. Um, I did find it a little funny when Beth's leading him into the diner that she passes all of these empty tables to set him all the way in this back booth. I'm just like, you know, I've waitressed before and that's the most inefficient move because now you have to go all the way back there away from every other table you're serving and you're the only waitress in that diner. So you're walking a lot. I don't know if you're trying to get your steps in or what, but that's just not... That's not efficient behavior, Mm, mm -hmm, but I did mm -hmm. like, as far as setting the stage, you know, if this were a stage play, I do like how that sets him up. He's kind of set up and over so he can keep observing everybody. And I did like that visual. I also weirdly really like the aesthetic of the diner, just how brown everything is. Yeah, it's so like 70s vibe. Yes, yes. It it feels like every Wisconsin diner and supper club (laughs) I've ever been into, that's just that, that setting and that, like the orange and the brown and the tan um and it was kind of unsettling in its own Mm. way especially as she's offering people coffee over and over again it just feels like everything about this is very brown even the words being said and so then that really heightens the um the visuals of the ruby that he's carrying Mm. um even as they sort of briefly mention that so i i really kind of loved their exchange i loved how it started from his slippers on up when they were (laughs) scanning him as he was entering that re sort of reintroduces you to the character and how different he is from who he's going to be engaging with. And uh, just generally sort of as, as slow as it was, I totally get you, Sean, with regard to the pacing regarding meeting each mm. individual mm-hmm. character. I do like how they um, modified and, and brought these characters up to the 21st century um, with, with regard to how they're communicating with one another, some updating some of the relationships with one another. Um, Kate and Gary, you know, that, that relationship has changed a little bit as far as the dynamics are concerned. I appreciated that. Uh, Judy and the way that we're introduced to Rose via the, the camera phone. um, I thought that was very helpful and a a good way to sort of insert a character nod without it dominating too much. Um, And even, even the changes in, in Marsh and how he's introduced, I thought that was kind of compelling because you sense tension there and it kind of builds really passive aggressively, just like the relationship uh, with uh, Kate and Gary. So I thought that was kind of a cool balance of power dynamics. Um, But generally speaking, I kind of enjoyed 
seeing how this ensemble was going to be interacting with one another. Hmm, yeah, because I, I like, you know, you pick up on the tension right away. Mm-hmm. And I sort of felt like there was no point at which I had some time to just maybe like start to like these characters. <laughs> like at no <laughs> point did I particularly like any of these kids. Like I feel like if I went into that diner, right, I would get that there's a really weird vibe right away and probably get mm-hmm. out. You know, maybe it's just like you spend like long enough, you know, like living in a city and you sort of pick up a sense for like, oh, there's a weird tension in here. I probably don't want to stick around here for too long. Something might happen. I feel like I would be I would be out fairly quick. <laughs> I don't know. That just felt like the general vibe again of a small town. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is who goes to these places. But I, I honestly really loved Judy and how she kind of just comes in and she's in a bad mood. And she like even her interaction with Mark, that whole line. I'm Mark, by the way. And I'm gay. That was hilarious. I lost it. For sure. I thought that was so well delivered. At first I was, Um, I thought that was so mean. But then I was like, you know, (laughs) if I'm like trying to think from her perspective, it's probably, she probably knows how this sort of thing goes. Right. And she's probably. This has probably happened to her a million times. Yes. Yeah. So understandable there. (laughs) I also really loved the interior there. I loved the way they had that um, set up, even though I wasn't, you know, particularly crazy about all of the characters. I think it was just that they were kind of like mean to each other, like right away, you know? And and then sort of Bet had that energy of someone who is, you know, like suppress repressing a lot, let's say, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. She wants that tip. Yeah. Yeah. And then and oh that Marsh is just such a jerk. He's so rude. So rude. Yeah, what's your what's your take there on Marsh? Yeah, what's your take there on Marsh? He was the one that surprised me the most. Like, I, I kind of knew what to expect with all of them. And so then when it got to him, I was like, okay, Marsh. And then he was such a dick that I was like, whoa, what is happening to Marsh? Like, I thought he was kind of, I mean, aloof, but not this aloof. Um, so when their dynamic changed, I was a little surprised. Sean, how did you feel? You know, I have a vague memory of of Mark of Marsh's role in the in the comic, but with this, it was just it was just so difficult to get through all of those scenes of him just like gruffly like you know single syllable acknowledgement or like completely ignoring ignoring that. And I mean, even leaving aside the fact that like uh, okay, I mean maybe he's not up to date on the age gap discourse or whatever. He's got a relationship going with, with Beth's son, but you, you you can't treat her like that, <laughs> especially if you're having some sort of tryst with the young man, right? Like, <laughs> absolutely. Right. right. I did think it was, it's, it's hard work they have to do because you remove the ability to have the sort of, you know, omniscient uh, narrator voice mm. that you have yeah. on the page. Right. And so, and you are dealing with real people, right? Like these are, these are actors, you know, that need to communicate something. Mm. So you have to, you have to do more work both in, in, in giving these performers a character to Mm. inhabit, right? And at the same time, you have to do more work of introducing them to 
the viewer. Mm. I do kind of wish they'd mm -hmm. started off a little more likable, so I was more on their side as things started <laughs> to turn. But you know, I think that that overall uh, it, it was it was a good job. All right. Well, now that we have set the table, as it were, uh, let's see what we actually end up getting. So uh, this next bit is when John D starts to use the ruby. And at first, you know, he's just using it for people to be honest with each other. Um, and then we start to see what that honesty breeds as different people start to um, have conversations that maybe they've needed to have for a very long time and have been hiding behind just the inertia of everyday life to get by. Um, and then that slowly devolves, evolves, devolves. I don't know. Take your pick on how you want to take it. Uh, but the, the next that we see, we see a different coupling of people happening, uh, than, than what we originally saw when people were there. And so what we'll end this scene is when, as I put into the notes, uh, all of the sexy time comes to a very quick end <laughs> and, that is where this scene will stop for us. So uh, Ashley went first last time. So Sean, you're up. What do you want to start with in this scene? I got to start with Mark's absolutely brutal clapback on Judy, where Judy is trying to, to it was asking him if he's getting any cell reception, uh, after, after like arguing him with him about the the ethics of the company he's going to to interview for like let's let's not forget that but he asks if uh she asks about you know his, his cell reception doesn't think her texts are going through and he says they went through she just doesn't want to hear from you <laughs> that was ooh man just bodied oh Judy I'm sorry girl I'm sorry um that was so good yeah but uh, and you know, there are all these moments throughout um, throughout this, you know, this this scene, this section of the program uh, where the characters are revealing these, you know, sort of hidden truths about themselves. Um, and it increasingly escalates and ex escalates into towards action. But at the beginning, it's, it's really just them sort of revealing all these things. And I loved how every time they did that, they sort of like you know, like caught themselves and they got yeah. this puzzled look on Absolutely. their face. Absolutely. Like it didn't stop them from, um, from, from, from doing it. It's like, they just sort of link, like their face just clouded for a moment. You know, they knew something was wrong with what they're saying, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. Uh, I really appreciate mm -hmm. that. Mark did a good job with that after that line. And then he just goes, I have four bars, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> but that did the same thing when, when John, initially uses the ruby uh to get her to admit he's not handsome which is just mm -hmm. i mean whoo this is you glutton for punishment john really well it's one of those places where it does shine a light on the small untruths that we utilize every day just to let society like run, right? Yeah, These the lubricant of all can, our yeah, social interactions. It. Exactly, exactly, mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of like, 
you know, when keeping what it is the point of engaging with somebody? Is it to be brutally honest with them? Is it to, you know, is it just to form a, you know, a, a strong bond and relationship? And, you know, what are those untruths and lies that you can tell that, you know, can make or break something like that? And I thought it was uh, a good way to clearly set that out. I also appreciated, so this is the first section of the show where we see what I thought was a really cool effect they utilized throughout was the increasingly increasingly dark claustrophobic atmosphere of the diner. So pretty much, I think it's, ah, at the moment when Bet and Marsh are having their confrontation, which is just so awful it's just like oh uh-huh. such a you know gut-wrenching thing like interaction to experience right but the the diner noticeably darkens for the mm. first time uh-huh. and and it, it happens again at least once more and all those you get this sort of very noirish lighting of like like red orange yellows and then these heightened shadows that i thought were really effective at building the the, the tension uh, of of the scene, which is really the you know the first part where we're kind of ratcheting things up. Ashley, what about you? What did you want to pull out of the scene? I appreciate the structure that they've created for John to sort of play with. You know, if I remember correctly, in the comic, there's no one victim that John sort of singles mm. out as his like favorite toy um he kind of uses them all to his advantage and his entertainment whereas in the diner it feels like he uses he leverages bet to sort of be the puppet that he sort of kicks off a lot of these interactions with because he says you know you're going to help me do this you're going to help me bring this world we dream of together you know into fruition and even you mentioned when he says you don't actually find me handsome I do love this conversation being set up between reality uh, and the imagination or, or um, truth and lies uh, with regard to her being a writer. And, you know, when when she tries to answer him as to why she says that, how complex the truth is for mm-hmm. her, because she's not she's always just said it. it's just been a part of her script that she's created mm-hmm. for herself as a waitress um, so that she doesn't have. He's trying to draw the truth out of everybody, but even for her, she's just like, it's just a thing I say. You know, I I don't, you're right, I don't think you're handsome, but it's just a thing I say. I want you to feel good about yourself. You know, there are lots of reasons that we say those things. Um, I thought, and so, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I just wanted no, to note ahead. that I thought it was really interesting the way she starts saying that, like, I just wanted you to feel good. She starts saying that mm-hmm. and then she stops because she has to say the actual truth, which is I want you to like me, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it takes her a while to mm-hmm. get there. It's almost like she's untangling for her what the yeah. truth is um, because she's never considered it before. And none of them really have as we see all these conflicts develop. I did think it was heart-wrenching to see that conflict with Marsh. And I ga- I audibly gasped when he revealed that he was sleeping with her son in the way that he did because it was so callous, because it was so cruelly put um, as not just like a confession, but just, you know, what the routine has become and what his routine with that family has become and what he's allowed her to kind of believe about the relationship mm-hmm. for a while um, was really just so arresting. But I did like how, you know, 
you see these relationships start to fray at the edges. And the thing, the things that became the most unsettling for me as he starts using the Ruby on them, uh, one, as they start, um, staying longer than they anticipated and bet every time offers them more coffee. You see this like routine of her, like offering them coffee. And that's what happens again at a diner. You always get as much coffee as you ever want. Um, and so to see that sort of play out about the third or fourth time she offers somebody coffee, that's when my husband's head shot up and he's like, what's going (laughs) on? And he was immediately uncomfortable. Um, and then when she takes, uh, Kate and Gary's order yep. again. Oh yeah, that was so cool. And he decides that he was. yes. And when when you know he orders a burger and they have that conflict and he takes it and she's like, you're right, you didn't order this. And then he goes back into the into the kitchen anyway and gets a burger and eats like wants to eat it discreetly there. Again, thinking of just the sheer amount of calories he's consuming that he wouldn't normally would upset your stomach so much. So that is one sort of aspect I kind of wish we saw more of just like how grotesque the, the repetitive sort of unintentional gluttony that's happening is occurring in that cycle as well. I thought that would have kind of been like a cool, horrific element if we'd seen a little bit more of that. Just people guzzling coffee, people eating burgers that they n- had no intention of Think eating. Think about how many more times they would have had to actually do that like while filming. They would have had to take like <laughs> right. 10 times as many bites of burgers. <laughs> that probably violates a Netflix contract or something. Like in terms Well, and calories. it's funny because I've... I've had friends on on shoots where they're meant to be eating things and they were like vegans at the time. So they have spit buckets for that. So they'll like take a bite, they'll chew it, they'll hold it in their mouth and then they'll just spit it out in a bucket. Kind of like when you're like doing a wine tasting, Mm. but it's, you know, set food. Um, So they could. I just think it would have been an interesting passage of time to see that progress Mm. over time and see people get, you know, increasingly more slovenly, maybe not again in a cartoonish sense so much, but just again, to see the extent of time they're spending in this one place. I think they did a pretty good job. I just think again, to heighten the horrific element, uh, that would have been an interesting tack to take. Um, you, you mentioned that, you know, that role of, of that being a writer, and then, you know, how that plays into the larger conflicts between, you know, the the division between what's a dream and, and what's a lie, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, now, you've read the, the issue more recently than I have, it sounds like, or you remember better, but um, they, that wasn't a, that wasn't a conflict that had, that had as much attention paid to it in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Not that not that I'm recalling what the focus was in that issue from my memory is really that John wants to be set up as a god. Like yeah. generally speaking, reality him doesn't suit him. He wants to conquer new territory. So he's opening up their imaginations and their conduct to sort of destroy this world and enter into a new realm and sort of get the attention of Dream so he can like ultimately fight him and take control of the Dream right. realm. So really it's for him, it's about control and about power and being godlike. Right. Whereas in this, he kind of has, I mean, twisted, but sort of understandable altruistic intentions it's just he, they're very misguided but you can kind of relate to yeah more truth in the world would be nice who would disagree with that well then i yeah i have to i mean i find this to be a a really a more compelling and um effective conflict honestly i because mm-hmm. it's it's really interesting to notice how 
you know, they're, they're, they're differing approaches there. And it becomes not just a, you know, conflict between two characters, but between two philosophies and interpretations of the world, right? Which is much mm -hmm. more interesting. Right. Well, I think that's what we've seen yeah. over, yeah. you know, the last 40 years of development when it comes to, you know, like, our culture is that we typically expect a lot more from our antagonist uh, than what was originally kind of the, yeah, they just have to be a bad dude doing doing bad things. And instead it's like, hey, what if they're like maybe kind of a bad dude doing kind of maybe bad things, but like there's like a purpose and a meaning behind it and we've explored kind of why they might do those things. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I think, you know, there's there will probably inevitably be like a backlash to that you know, mm -hmm. that movement because people are like, no, how about if like the bad person is just a bad person, you know, like the Joker in, um, right. you know, the dark Knight, like just a bad dude doing, being a bad dude, like, you know, for bad dude reasons. Um, and so mm -hmm. I, I do think that, you know, these are reflective again of the time that the media is coming out. That's true. That, that's, that, that's a good point. And especially when you're dealing with characters, you know, like, I, you know, I'm sort of thinking from a comics perspective here, but when you're thinking of characters who have been around for decades and decades, like you, it's nice to be able to have some change there to introduce mm. some variety, some development, uh, or, you know, in a character. Um, so I think, I think that's a, yeah, that's definitely a trend and, and it's been a real benefit to the Sandman's adaptation so far. Yeah. All right, so let's get into the the main question from this section, which is, which of the pairings did you enjoy the most? <laughs> well, Mark and Kate were so gross. I can't, their flirting was so gross. <laughs> it was. It was just so brazen. Yeah. She's like touching his fingers and everything and like, it was total abuse of power. Talking about well, they don't, I mean, technically, her. I mean, he doesn't work for anything yet, so. No, but, like, he, he enters into this conversation under the understanding it's a job <laughs> interview initially, <laughs> which is part of what made me so uncomfortable. I was like, granted, he doesn't seem like he's not consenting, but also just uncomfy vibes totally. from this dynamic totally. and then she's, and she's just like yeah my uh husband uh used to sell gym memberships and also he can't sex good so you know that's <laughs> like just rude ah <laughs> oh, that was so rough so i mean i think you know i i thought uh judy and bet's like tender scene together mm. was really nice like i thought it was like a touching mm -hmm. moment i liked you know, seeing uh, someone return some of the like tenderness that Bet yes. tries to show, That's good. Yeah. and Judy yeah. letting down her 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 guard a little bit, and I thought, you know, even the the, the camera work while they were it gets like sort of closer and closer until mm. you're almost just looking at parts of their face when they finally kiss. I thought it, I thought that was really really nice. I guess I'll give second place to. Um, to Gary and Marsh, uh, who <laughs> they just seem like they're uh, like a like a, a they just, just a couple two guys of, having a good time. Yeah, definitely. It does. Real, like, a real hey, dude like, we rock do moment. This. Yeah, definitely. Like we both want this, so like, why aren't we doing this? Yeah, it's like great. Yeah, yeah, and they're no, neither of them are too 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 nice, you know. But uh, uh, 
they, they, they seem to be under no illusions of what they're getting from each other's relationship. <laughs> yeah. I think because those two are the ones that came off as like the most inherently violent to me that even though, again, they were both interacting in a consensual way, it still stressed me out to see them do so because it was just like someone's going to die. Like someone is going to lose a member in this coupling ah. because of how aggressive they both are coming off and you're in right a kitchen, now. This is stressing you know, this me is out. This like an OSHA right. violation all over so the place. Many sharp <laughs> Exactly. But but I agree with Sean, Judy and, and Bet's scene together. One, it surprised me because I wasn't expecting that because, again, you don't see that from the comic. But for them to be able to let their guard down in a way that was totally unexpected, where everything else felt still like a power dynamic in some regard, theirs felt the most honestly mm. sort of tender and vulnerable as opposed to as Gary said sometimes you just gotta get your suck yeah <laughs> you know so you know i appreciated their level of intimacy above the other two he was probably eating a burger at the same time like reliving so, Which or is, like again, so living gross. some long-standing fantasy that he's had you know Ugh, no thank you <laughs> this is so bad how about you ben what's your what's your number one pairing um I think I'll I'll agree with Ashley and say the bet and bet and Judy and just like the the tenderness there because it uh it allows for the the next scene that we are gonna roll into to just have quite a lot of heft to it. Yeah, it was a nice mm-hmm. little reprieve. You gotta it give was. a break to I need a break. You know, they're having they're having their little like sort of post coital moment sitting on the on the floor in the hallway by the bathrooms, I think, which is mm-hmm. like I, I mean, I get it. It's a, lot, it's a very passionate time, but that is not sanitary. <laughs> <laughs> bring, bring. Bring, bring. Hey, you've reached Sean Dotson. Uh, leave a message. Uh, yeah, Sean. Uh, this is Sam over at Vanguard. Um, you said you'd be here uh, about 15 minutes uh, late. Um, it's been 17 and a half hours. And we're not quite sure where you are. So we're going to send out a search party for you. And uh, I guess hope we find you. Um, yeah. Don't uh, call us if you get this. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right. Here we go. Yes. Let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Oh man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello. That's mom. Uh, Pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it. Pause it. Turn off the TV. Do, do you Shh, think she's gone? Make a sound. Hmm. I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters. Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. All right, so for our next scene breakdown, we're going to run right up to the point where Dream walks into the diner. And so in this scene, uh, we see a lot of uh, death, a lot of violence, um, we see 
conflict is really erupting globally where we're, if you're paying attention to the TV that's in the background, the TV the TV reflects what is happening uh, and it's not just happening in the diner to show you this is happening at a global scale. Uh, is what we're seeing. Uh, and we're also visited again for the second time by the fates, the three in one, the one in three, the Hecatate, um, the kindly ones. And so there's a lot in here, a lot of uh, really great bits and pieces. Uh, so Ashley, starting with you, what did you want to pull out first? Yeah, I was really impressed with the one-to-one adaptation of the reintroduction of the kindly mm. ones into this scene um, with him sort of intentionally or unintentionally. Cause we don't really get clarity either here or in the comic of him sort of creating his own one and three, three and one in this case by having uh bet blind herself and then, you know, asking for, for them to tell him his future. Like all of that dialogue is exactly as it is from the comic. I double checked before we recorded and it, it was just, Again, anytime they've introduced the Hecate into a scene, the way they've shot mm-hmm. it is so imaginative and so well done. So you're not confused, but you still see how ethereal, how to sort of beyond they are without getting lost as to who's speaking or how they're speaking. And so to be able to bridge that between how they've been originally introduced to then these three characters that he set in the Steiner was just very clever, uh, and I don't think lost anybody. It, it feels momentous when the fates show up, doesn't it? It like feels yes. yeah. big, and I really mm-hmm. like that they're building this mystique, and that 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 it's always you know uh, that they're this extremely powerful like force of nature that shows up at these important yes. times. Because as we get further in the story, if we're allowed to get further in the story of, you know, of this adaptation, um, yeah. I imagine it will be really cool when you get to the sort of climax of the entire series. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Just how, just how ubiquitous they are and how um, even you see the audacity John has by arguing with them. No, that's yes. not my, that's not, yes. that's not my future. Tell me again. Yeah. How's my how's my future right. go, Fates? How's it go? Like right. I expect you to put, pull out a Glock and be like, "What? Say that again?" Sometimes with exactly. just how angry he gets about it, but well, they like they threaten Dream, right? When he when he pushes just a teeny tiny bit for just a little more information, and they threaten like one of the endless. And here with John, you know, it's just like, okay, we'll give you we'll give you a second we'll give you a second reading, sure. Right. It's kind of like appeasing a child. This this sullen uh, creature almost. And I wonder sometimes, and again, this might be reading too too much into it, but just look, your fate's going to be what your fate is. If us telling you something untrue is going to get you to chill out, like it's not really going to change what's going to happen. So, Mm. you know, you're not worth trifling with because ultimately you know how this is going to end. Right. But still. And they did tell the truth still, you know, they did. They they just described two separate yes. events, and <laughs> right. he decided to only pay attention to one of them. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, so I just appreciate the economy of the cast of characters and how they're being used for screen time, um, and mm-hmm. being able to reuse you know actors for these these scenes. I thought was both beautifully shot and luckily still very understandable for anybody who's not familiar with these characters as thoroughly as we are. All right, Sean, why don't you take us over into the Sean special, the grossness. (laughs) 
I'll, I'll give you some grossness here. Okay, there is one shot where when John is, you know, wandering through the place to go get his ice bucket cream. of ice cream. <laughs> yes. I wasn't quite sure what that was like, at first. I was like, ice cream, lard, like, just yeah, ma- exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Grossest thing in the whole episode, as he's walking through the kitchen, he passes on his way to the freezer a apparently shelf-stable glass jar of hot dogs. I have a screenshot. I'll share it in the Discord. (laughs) It's a glass jar filled with hot dogs. You don't have pickled hot dogs in your house? (laughs) No. No, I didn't even know that was a thing. I mean, conceptually, I can understand it, but something about jarred meats just kind of weirds me out. Yeah, you got to prep for winter. You can get them canned, too. Yeah, like a little uh, Vienna sausages and things yeah, like that. you know. You don't know how long they're going to be in the Steiner for. They need something. That's, that's <laughs> but that, that was, that, so that was the grossest thing for me uh, on, a, on a pile of a lot of other gross things. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a huge, like, gore person uh, exactly, you know. Um, I don't like watch, you know, like watching characters be like tortured or anything like that. Um, but as a, as a, as a show, the Sandman has been pretty understated in its use of horrific elements, Mm. you know, at least less so than in the comic. We've talked about how the comic, you know, entering into the marketplace, it was leaned heavily in those initial issues on, uh, on, you know, the sort of on the horror genre. And as it developed over the course of the series, of course it came to be, you know, ultimately much more of a, of a fantasy series. Mm-hmm. But this show has sort of firmly situated itself in the kind of dark fantasy mm-hmm. area, I guess. And this is really the, you know, maybe the first time where we've seen just outright horror and i thought it was really well done i thought it was i thought it was really cool i you know it i think very elegantly used shadow and used cuts and things like that uh to you know avoid like some of the most like just gruesome sights but they were so well indicated uh i definitely you know jumped and squirms squirmed with the with the nails going through Ooh, hands yeah, that was and, hard and things just being chopped off and and of course bet with the uh with the pins the skewers through, yeah yeah the skewers through her eyes um it was i i mean i have to wonder what it would have been like for someone just approaching the TV show, you know, without having read the source material and maybe not knowing, you know, what to expect out of this episode through reading ahead or anything and like just encountering this after the first few episodes. Like, I wonder what that reaction was. Go ahead, Ashley. I was just going to say, you mentioned John D wandering through and kind of admiring his own handiwork. And I just so love the expression on David Thewlis's face, just sort of, 
this is exactly what I expected it to be. And yet it disappoints me. The fact that Mm -hmm. I've, I've drawn the truth out of them and yes, they are all acting exactly as I would expect humanity to act, uh, was so well done as he held that, as he Mm -hmm. was walking around, just observing people. Yeah. It's just fascination mixed with like a sort of mild Mm -hmm. disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the, you know, and we, we talk about this a lot that, you know, the comic is, is a different medium than the television show and they're coming at different times. And, you know, if this television show would have just been, you know, it could have been so much more horrific the, the entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think you lose the thread. Sure. I think it, I, I think it misses the mark of what, what it's trying to do. And instead by reserving itself for moments like this, oh, now it's very powerful, right? And now we're on the back half now of the television show and really things start to, we, we have now escalated, right? Um, and that this will, I'm really excited to kind of see what they do with these last five episodes, having really introduced the, the level that they can kind of push towards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ashley, coming back over to you, what else did you want to pull out of this scene? I was kind of taken aback by the moment in which the entire group from the diner sort of came to for a moment and looked at him and was like, oh, you're the reason we're doing all of these things and sort of you know, posted up like they were going to go after him. Um, I didn't quite know what to expect from that moment. So I was like, okay, is this going to be where we get like a huge brawl? Because we've kind of been moving from like gluttony to lust to, um, to wrath in some way. So is this going to like build up into just all out, you know, chaos? Um, so I was, I appreciated that we had a moment of lucidity from them to be able to acknowledge and maybe for anybody who wasn't like paying close attention, Hey, the Ruby is doing this. You are doing this to (laughs) us. Um, Just to kind of establish that while these may be thoughts that they've had or musings that they've had, that this is, as John says, their truth uh, that they are not necessarily as much as, maybe thinking these things, consenting to their action. Um, and I thought that might've been helpful for people again, who are not quite grasping exactly what's happening apart from being, having artifice pulled away. Um, and, and the fact that given back their senses, they might've done something if they had been able to maintain that. But as we saw, then we see the power of the Ruby and them being ordered to drop the knives. We're starting to see like another element of what this Ruby can do apart from, you know, warping minds that he can also kind of control people in that way as well. Um, Again, I I think that we're still learning a lot about this magic system and, and how certain things work. And so I felt like that was a helpful moment for people to recognize all the different things this Ruby can do as apart from just sort of warping how we perceive reality. Yeah. And, and I think that also that, that interaction during that moment of lucidity um, also did a lot of work in explaining that shift to their, like self mutilation, mm-hmm. right? And because this this John D is not a bloodthirsty character. He's not just a madman like comic mm-hmm. book Doctor Destiny. He hasn't shown any particular, you know, proclivity towards violence. Although he's been willing to use it defensively, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so you know that shift doesn't occur until they've sort of rejected his gift and being like, no, you know, you didn't really set us free. We didn't want this, right. you know? Um, 
and then he, you know, and then it's, it's, it's that turn into, you know, you enjoy your suffering, perhaps your suffering will set you free. Mm -hmm. So I think that really made the, the violence following it made it fit within the character according to the character and according to the, the, the world of the television Sandman, right. As opposed to the comic. I mean, that was very nicely. Yeah. Done. We needed that rhetorical through line to help sort of tie everything together. Otherwise those sort of eras in the diner wouldn't quite make total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then actually just one thing to pick up on that you said um, about the seven deadly sins and uh, l- let's see if we, we covered all seven of them. Right. So, uh, lust. I think we can agree that there was some lust there. <laughs> yeah. Um, gluttony. We had that. Mm-hmm. Uh, greed. Certainly saw oh, that. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sloth. Can anyone find a? I mean, what about John hunched over there with his ice cream, just watching <laughs> That's TV? True. You know? just like, like I'm over it. It's it's a living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I almost wonder if maybe like Bet is a is a manifestation of sloth in terms of like, that's a really good thing to pick up on. Yeah. Yeah. And just like, you know, she's never writing the novel. Like, like she's never doing it. She always has an excuse as to why she doesn't. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. You know, so that one might be, you know, um, uh, wrath, obviously, um, envy. I mean, we, we see that end in, in bloodshed, Mm -hmm. uh, and then pride. Does anyone want to, I mean, pride is, frankly the root of pretty much all of these evils right you know i i wasn't even necessarily trying to pull on the seven seven deadly sins exclusively but that's a good pickup on on your part and i'm glad you brought it up um i was more focusing on the three that has like desire at their root because that comes up later Mm. um and i needed something to to pull from that introduction um so like in looking at the the three that like most obviously manifest um just as far as like specific scenes or specific lines are said i think you can see a through line of desire through those three but i do agree with you that the other four that you've pulled do reveal themselves if you actually pay close attention to those other moments. And I really like what you said about Bet and and Sloth. I, I wouldn't have thought about that. But that's a really that's an astute observation. I'm gonna be thinking about that for a while now. I mean not that there's anything wrong with uh, you know, uh wanting to write a novel and then uh you keep uh putting it off and having perfectly valid reasons <laughs> to keep putting it off and you'll get to it one day. Um, you just need to get some things taken care of first. I, I, I don't how see many, how, that's, how many that's representative how of many anything. How many word documents really. with just one paragraph or one line <laughs> do we each have between the three of us? <laughs> all right. Well, I, I think all three of us need to go do a little self-reflection on those uh, one paragraph word documents. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be right back. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. <laughs> Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, yeah, sounds like someone fell. <laughs> <laughs> Get back here! Get back here! 
gotcha. Ah! This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! <laughs> Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Our final scene is the showdown between John and Dream. So we see Dream enter him take John to the dreaming because if you're going to try and defeat the dream Lord, you're going to do it in the dreaming. Um, and then when all hope seems lost, um, the John ends up smashing the Ruby and that pumps all of that energy back into dream. And we see a very happy John D as he thinks he's won, but in fact has returned all that power to Morpheus and, you just see him as a tiny little speck in Dream's hand. Um, so let's start with you, Sean. Uh, how'd you feel about this uh, adaptation of a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty big part of the comic book? I would say. I, I thought these this scene was just uh, great. I thought it was the from the confrontation between. Morpheus and John at the diner to using the, the, the Burgess's mansion as the setting for, mm. you know, dreams kind of nightmare that he puts John in is his sort of method of, of doing battle. Right. I just thought it was all so cool. I would have loved more of this. Honestly, I could have, I, I easily would have given up, you know, five minutes or so in the diner to get another five mm. minutes uh, of this confrontation because I thought it was really imaginative. It was creepy. It was cool. And I, I think it did a lot of good storytelling work too. You know, we, we've talked about it throughout this episode so far, but you know, this moment of confrontation between John and dream in the diner is really the sort of, you know, philosophical, the, the, the moral debate at the center of, of the show, right? And like I said, you know, we have a different John D than we did in the comic. So, you know, in the comic issue five, John says, he's talk, talking to Rosemary, says dreams are real, right? But this version of John is convinced of the opposite. So that dreams that the, you know, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and our world are lies to cover up those like brutal okay. truths and dark urges that are at the root of our characters. And this makes him such an interesting antagonist for, for dream because of that dreams, you know, moment where he shows them, he shows John that, you know, these are not their, these aren't lies. These are their dreams. Wow. These are their, hopes these are you know this this is an expression of the type of people they want to be right not you know maybe not who they are but that perspective in this dark dark episode is so cool you know because despite the gore and the depravity um the show's making like a deeply you know humanistic argument Absolutely. on behalf of Absolutely. of people and of the power of stories and their role in our lives. Um, and so this, I was not expecting to see such a nice summation of that, the, the, the perspective that this story takes. I, I don't think I could put a, a finer cap on it that Sean already has. I just, 
I personally, I've had so many conversations with people that have a very nihilistic viewpoint and, and do see humanity as ultimately depraved and, Ultimately, there's really not much hope. We've we've seen, quote unquote, how people act um, in the world, look at social media, et cetera, et cetera. And they do, you know, again, because of social media, perceive humanity as very similarly scary, scary enough to how John D. sees us. Everyone's lying. You're lying. Um, and so it's <laughs> that's a shame. I just love I love hearing you say that. It's all, yeah, just, I love no, it totally. Talking. Yeah, because that's like what the Corinthian does. Yeah, no, that's so I've right. Been, I've been perfecting You're it. lying, Alan. <laughs> but it, I, I've heard them sort of express that frustration and that anxiety so frequently so that once Dream, as that Sean quoted, uh, says, no, these aren't lies. They're, they're their dreams. And you see this sort of like warm glow come from the windows and he's explaining how each of them was really pursuing this, this ultimately good thing. Um, and it's just been kind of warped in their attempt to achieve that, but he's still ultimately got an optimistic view of where they could end up. You know, were they allowed to maintain their hopes and their dreams? Um, I started to tear up a little bit because I wasn't expecting that kind of optimism in this episode of all episodes. Uh, so that was really a really worthwhile inclusion to me uh, in this sort of beginning of the, of the battle. I thought that was really lovely. Uh, as far as the ultimate battle is concerned, you know, they've made a, a, a few adjustments here and there, but I thought it was gorgeous, especially when they land in the throne room and, you know, John's mm. holding the ruby and everything's like all the stones and such start to like dissolve into like sort of weird flame dream flame is the only way I can think of it. <laughs> and certain parts of the walls start to rise up and then you see the entire gap, like just galaxies upon galaxies. I thought that was incredible. I just, yeah, and then it all stops, yes. right? When yeah, and it all just pauses yeah. and freezes, right? It was there. just, it was so pretty. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where you know this isn't the obviously this isn't the the last episode, but this is one of the things that a lot of people complain about when it comes to fantasy stories on screen. That when you get to these like ultimate battles, mm -hmm. um, that it's just a lot of colors and lights and um, you know I think the blank check guys say like it's just like blobs like moving around the screen. <laughs> and here it was very much just like what we saw totally made sense based on everything they had set up for us. Mm -hmm. The 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 place we were, we're like, yep, this makes sense. We'd be back in the throne room, mm -hmm. you know. And then the that imagery that we're seeing and like the dream flame and ever those are all things that we've seen this entire time. And it was just all put into like this one spot, right? And we see, you know, uh, Morpheus losing power and it being sucked in, and even though you could say like, oh, right, it was a, a big battle where there were like lights and colors and those kind of things. It was like, yes, in this story, through four in 4.75 episodes had brought us to the point where it makes sense to have that be the culmination of all of this, which I was like, ah, yes, that is how you can use these things in a meaningful way. Um, and again, mm -hmm. we still see that like the Sandman in like a battle, right? And I mean, that's just, I'm, I'm using that moniker just because that's just like what fits, mm -hmm. you know, there is no, there, he is not doing anything other than like talking, and trying to get John to understand either by talking to him or by showing him um, these different, um, the, these, the, a different way that it could be. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know I've done my fair share of complaining yeah. about certain visual effects and stuff in previous episodes, but as you've mentioned before, Ben, with budgeting and what they might have to pick and choose to invest in scene-wise, if this was one of the things, to me, it was well worth it uh, because of mm. how well composed it was. I was super impressed. Yeah, this whole episode was a real like technical accomplishment, mm -hmm. it felt like. I mean, not that, you know... I'm in any position to be the, 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 you know, the ultimate judge of, of film technical <laughs> achievement, but it just felt like it all worked really well. Like everything from the camera work to the lighting, to the sets, to the, to, to the computer, you know, to the, to, to the, to the effects, which, um, you know, and I'm, I'm generally one of those annoying nerds who likes practical effects <laughs> over, over anything, uh, CGI, but it, as Ben said, it really did fit here, and everything worked really well. I loved the the uh, Witch Cross Burgess Manor scene. Yeah. I liked that it was shot like a like a haunted house, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. movie mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, Ethel showing up again was loved was it. appropriately yes. horrifying. Yep. You know, you you this it took this character who has been presented as almost omnipotent throughout you know most of this episode and put us you know feeling like scared from his perspective yeah i almost thought that if we would have seen like a mirror you know we would have seen a very young john d in that reflection mm. right that's like what it felt like you know when if um if that could have happened so I also thought it was kind of interesting too when he sees young Ethel at the end of the hallway and we don't know it's her quite yet. You 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 have a guess, but you're still not sure. And she just shows her leg and we seem kind of smirk. I was like, we've never seen him express desire in that way before. I'm so uncomfortable. That's true. Like what is That's true. And then he kind of goes in for a yes. kiss too. I was like, where is this coming from? And it doesn't really that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. This hasn't been established as any sort of part of his character. No, really. so I was so perplexed that that was his impulse because we've not seen him sort of express that in any other way. It's all kind of just been like my search for truth, my my search for truth all the time, my search for truth. So for him to have any other form of desire, I was like, I, I get that this is a dreamscape and that he might be experiencing other emotions because he has the freedom to do so in the dreaming, but because that's not been explicitly stated, I don't quite know where this is going. Mm. I appreciate the horrific effect, but uh, ultimately it's just a, a little unnerving um, in a more confusing way than a horrific way. I do like the fact that we see her sort of be verbally abusive to him. And then we see, you know, uh, some sort of scene in which she's yelling at an infant to shut up and go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately <laughs> seeing him strangled, you know, I thought that was a cool insight into what his darkest fears are. Um, but uh, yeah, ultimately just skeevy. <laughs> <laughs> so my big question, what do you all think of the big dream hand? Did it work for you? I It worked. I was observing his cuticles way more than I expected to, to be honest. I was I like, was wow, too. those are really yes. finely shaped nails. Very yeah. clean. The one thing, and this is such a nitpicky thing, but something that I did note is that his clothing is a little bit different from what I remember that panel being. I think in the panel, he's like wearing a gray t-shirt and looks a little more punk. I think it's a gray yeah. t-shirt. Whereas in yeah. this one, I was like, 
Are you doing like a table read for something? Is this like a black box theater <laughs> production? Why are you wearing all black? Are you on an improv team by chance? And that was my first thought. Yeah. But ultimately. Like comic book dream is like, he, he he's like, this is like chilling at home <laughs> right. dream, right? He's got like soft gray t-shirt on. He's got some jeans. Right. You know, these are like his comfy clothes that he changes into when he gets home. <laughs> right. Which works because he just got all his power back. He's like, oh, right, I don't need right. to worry about anything right. anymore. But this was, you know, it was a little more casual than like fully like coded or like, you know, like Matrix <laughs> hell battle dream, I guess. Very true. But yeah. Very that's true. true. But I did. We got away from the pleather, Ashley. We got away <laughs> from the true. pleather. That's true. We did get away from the pleather. I know I've had a lot of complaints about the costuming as well. So, but, um, but ultimately I thought the, the hand worked really well. Um, and I was excited about that. I also, I think we see Tom Sturge really come into his own. He's done so much work through these episodes that to see him at like the height of dream was really exciting. And to see him sort of be the, be a fatherly figure towards John in a way that John has not experienced ever just sort of, you know, firm in in the punishment, but not so cruel as he might have received. Not cruel, right? Definitely not. Yeah, cruel. exactly. He could have he could have inflicted far more pain considering what John had done, but the almost loving way he understands that this that, that there was just so many instances in which John was set on the wrong path um, by no fault of his own in some regard was. I thought, again, really well executed and hard to do when you're working with an actor that is older than you to sort of, Mm. you know, have that dynamic with the actor. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. both scene partners did an excellent job sort of establishing that new power dynamic uh, in a seamless Mm. way that didn't feel really forced. Yeah, I love the hand. I, I, I thought I imagined all these ways where it would look ridiculous. Uh, and it, it didn't look ridiculous. It looked, yeah, it looked really cool. Well, why don't we use that to roll right into your final thought? So one last thing here from the two of you that you wanted to make sure that listeners took away. Um, Ashley, why don't we start with you? One, one last thing I just want to mention about this episode is primarily the ultimate ending cliffhanger that we're given, uh, I it, I don't know how you guys felt felt about it, but I was <laughs> I was a little bit frustrated because I liked how it was ultimately ending with Dream putting John to sleep and setting him back in his bed back in the asylum and sort of talking about how they're going to clean up everything else later. But right now they've got to get back to the dreaming. I thought that was like a decent way to end it. I didn't really need a cliffhanger because there is already so much that's left hanging and to move forward on. I think also because we've established multiple times that the Corinthian is kind of the big bad of this season, the way they've set up these hierarchies of villains. um, To me, it made more sense if there was going to be some sort of weird cliffhanger to see the Corinthian again. I know I've got this like, weird sort of love hate relationship with that character but it just, just seemed like to some me Boyd. who doesn't like some Boyd? that's right? a really good point man he's just so charming but uh <laughs> it because he's the one that kind of set john on this path i would have thought if we had a cliffhanger we would have seen him again in his reaction to mm-hmm. this kind of failure i thought would have been interesting um instead we get mason Alexander. 
Alexander Park as Desire, sort of standing at the end of, of the street watching Dream walk away. And again, uh, mentions that that's his big brother and sort of kind of laughs evilly in the shadows. But like, again, sort of drummed up feelings about Maleficent rather than any sort of all powerful being that I was really afraid of. So I was kind of conflicted about that, um, that introduction. I just felt like there, there could have been a maybe more influential or powerful way, or maybe even just compelling way to introduce that character. Ultimately, there were like moments in which that character's power was being manifest in a scene that I thought it would have been cool to see like a whisper of something there and hinting towards instead of just a, here's a character. You don't know who they are yet. Comic book readers will be able to figure it out. Um, But it just felt cheap to me. I don't know how you guys felt about that introduction though. Well, I think it's again, it's a reflection of, you know, Netflix's goal is for when that button comes up that says, you know, play next episode that you don't back that you're just like, yes, I want to keep going. Right. And so, you know, versus when the comic comes out, well, you know, people are going to come back the next month, you know, I mean, that's how long it is in between Mm -hmm. it. And so I do feel like it is, you know, there, there are times when the creative pursuits that you once cannot be met by the limits of what is happening. And I think this is one of those times where we're probably not going to get, at least this is my guess, you know, I think desire is introduced to us having a conversation with despair in the comics and we kind of get like this full, and I guess is we are not going to get that much just because that take that would just take a lot of time and you got to mm-hmm. introduce another character and you got to go through all that. And so I'm wondering if that is part of, you know, why they did it is like, Hey, this person's important. Flashing red, like, hello, TV audience. Like this was an important person in case you didn't know. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to like it. So, uh, Sean, what about you? Okay. Three things. Three, One, three, three, three quick things. <laughs> Very quick. <laughs> you should have just introduced them as the Maybe one four. that is no, three and the three that is one. Get yeah. us. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> nice. Just on the on the subject of desire, I think yeah, I have to agree with Ashley here. I, although I understand, you know where where you're coming and, and where Netflix might be coming from, Ben. But um, it it was a little disappointing in such an elegantly constructed episode. Mm-hmm. To have that, you know, kind of vestigial tale on 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 the episode with that like dun dun yes. dun moment, mm-hmm. you know, um, which just felt like tonally to have so much less of a deft touch than the rest of a very carefully constructed episode mm-hmm. had. Although, you know, Mason Alexander Park looks awesome as desire. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the character looks great, sounds great. It certainly got me interested in 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 seeing more, but yes, I agree that the that the introduction was a little, you know, mustache twirly <laughs> for me. So, the second thing is, I liked the little I love the little 
news moments, like the newscaster who is explaining how these two like pandas yes. <laughs> mated. And yeah. She's like, I don't know why they that made was great. this world sucks so bad. <laughs> why would you want to bring another being out? This? It was so <laughs> funny. As a, yeah, it's really funny as an, as just a, and a great indication, very subtle indication of the way that these influence with the ruby has spread throughout the world right it's made very explicit in the comic they straight up say it they show you know different uh scenes happening around the world and in this um they did it just really through those you know through those moments through the through the the tv and and you know showing some fires and things like that and i just appreciated such a subtle element uh bringing in you know, a, a, a fairly important part of the show. Um, and then the last thing is that, so, you know, listeners won't be able to see this, but uh, as we record this, it's gotten increasingly dark. Uh, and where I'm recording, <laughs> it was bright when we started, and now I'm almost totally shrouded in darkness. And I think it's extremely appropriate uh, given how that, you know, mechanism was utilized throughout the episode that this is also happening to me in my office right now. Sean, who's that behind you? I was thinking we are we cannot do a video podcast for today because of what happened to you, Sean. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to thank both of you for a wonderful conversation on... 24-7. So I think all three of us were really happy with how much of this episode stayed true to the comic and amplified the comic, but didn't just redo the comic. We have a different John D in the television show as compared to what we have in the comic, and it did a wonderful job of making sure to hit the notes that we wanted to see while adjusting for this new medium. I think we are all three of us going to probably be critical when it comes to maybe some of Netflix's choices in terms of, hey, budget and where things could go and how they could make it even more awesome. But I think all three of us are really solid on this episode and think that the different themes, the different tonalities that are happening as a part of this episode make it a really impactful one. And I know we are all excited to see what happens next, especially with this new character, even if we weren't thrilled how they were introduced to us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.